We've had uh, an interesting time in this series of messages, Counterculture. I don't know about you, but it's, it's actually been pretty challenging to me. And, and I've, I've had some great discussions with people about how do we apply things like integrity? How do we apply things uh, like you know, being, being people of courage? How, how do those things apply? And I want to encourage you, this is worth the struggle. It's worth the struggle. When we look at the currents of society, the currents of culture, it's worth the struggle to consider whether we're going along with the flow or whether we're taking a stand for what is true and right, a stand that Jesus would want us to take, a stand that would move us in the direction that he wants us to go, even if it's going against the flow, even if it's counter to the culture. And so we've, 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 had some, we've had some interesting times, last week dealing with pride and humility and just how thin that line is between a healthy kind of pride and a sinful pride. Well, today sounds like it ought to be easy because today we're going to talk about hope. But maybe it's not as easy as we think it's going to be. I don't know if some of you checked the calendar. If you checked the calendar, it's December already. Uh, I see cars with, uh, strapped with little trees on top of them headed home. They're tossed in the back to home to get those things decorated. We've got stuff at our house decorated. But I got to tell you, December got here a little bit more quickly than I would have liked. And I was always told when I was a child that the older you get, the faster time goes. And <laughs> we got an amen. But if, and you, you come to understand this. I just got used to writing 2015 on checks. And now here in just a few weeks, I'm going to have to start learning to write 2016 on checks. But when I was a kid, it was different. When I was a kid, December didn't seem like it was ever going to get here. And what made the anticipation even worse, some of you don't, some of you may be too young to know this, but what made the anticipation even worse was when my mother came home from the post office with the J.C. Penney Christmas catalog or the Sears wish book. Some of you know what that's all about. Okay. And I'd open it up, and being a child, of course, I'm not opening it up to the socks and underwear section. I'm opening it up to the toys section, that, that good section in the back. And it was huge. And I would take a marker. And I would mark everything in there I wanted. I mean, there was, there was hardly a page except for the one that had all the Barbies and stuff on it. There was hardly a page that I didn't have something on there marked that I wanted. Model rockets and G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip and Stretch Armstrong and all kinds of things. That, that man, I, these are things that I really, really wanted. And, and so I began to hope that on Christmas morning, when I got up and I went in on Christmas morning and looked there under the tree, that all those things that I'd circled in that catalog would be sitting right there. Guess what? They weren't. And to make matters worse, there will always be socks and underwear. And as a child, that kind of hope turned into disappointment. As, a, you know, as I got older, I mean, I understood it and I realized that my hope was really misplaced. 
I was glad later that my parents sacrificed what they did in order to give me what they gave me. But I didn't understand that as a kid. It's a matter of perspective. And when it comes to hope, i got to tell you, even as adults, it's a matter of perspective. Many of you have had high hopes and ended up with a broken heart. Have had high hopes and ended up disappointed and disillusioned. You know that everything you hope for doesn't come to pass. And listen, I'm going beyond just buying a lottery ticket and hoping to hit your number. I mean, we all realize I mean, I've never bought a lottery ticket, and I stand probably about as good a chance of winning as you do if you buy one. I mean, you know the odds are just astronomical. I mean, you're you're probably more likely to get hit by a meteor than to win the lottery. But people play it because they've got this hope that they can win it. You know, they pull in football games. Not that I have any interest in a football game that was played last night in which the Tar Heels were robbed. Uh, But anyway... There's, but there's hope. And then there's disappointment. What if there were a hope that never ended in disappointment? I want to share that with you today as we talk about living in hope. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We're just going to look at five verses here. Now, I want to go ahead and tell you there's a lot in the Bible about hope. So if you want to do a little study, you can start, just use a concordance. You can go back and you can look up hope and you kind of follow hope all the way from Old Testament and New Testament. And you'll find literally, literally scores and scores and scores and scores of verses that mention hope. So today we're just going to focus on five verses in Romans chapter five that will help us to understand hope. We're going to read through them and then we're going to pick it apart a little bit. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to look there, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, this is what it says. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that afflictions that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. As we try to examine this verse, we want to begin with the very first word, which is therefore. And any time in Scripture, I've said it a hundred times, any time in Scripture you see therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. And typically you do that by going back. Could be the previous chapter, could be the previous section, could be the previous verse. It's giving you the foundation upon which the, the rest of the argument, the rest of the truth is to be communicated. And so if we were to do that, if we were to flip back, what we'd see in chapter 4, verse 25 was this, that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In other words, everything that I'm going to say moving forward is based on this. That Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He died for our sins. 
and he was raised for our justification. Justification means that, that we've been made right with God. Now, everything he's going to say moves from that point. This is our standing, and based on that, we're going to talk about hope. So he begins to go. He says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith. Now, don't miss this. This is huge. You have been declared righteous. Now, let's look a little bit at verb tenses. First of all, this is passive. This is not something that you have done for yourself. This is something that has been done on your behalf. You're not the actor here. God is the actor. He has done this for you. You have been declared righteous. You have been justified by something God has done. You simply received it by faith. It's also in the aorist sense. In the, in the Greek, it's an aorist verb, and it means this is something that was completed in the past. In other words, when Jesus said, it is finished, he actually meant it. I've done everything necessary for your salvation. You did not earn this. You didn't deserve it either, but you didn't earn it. You can't brag that you got it. You only received it by faith. You did not declare yourself righteous. It is God. It is God through Jesus who declares, announces, proclaims that you are righteous. See, if if you miss this, the rest of it doesn't make any sense. If you don't understand how you have become righteous in the sight of God, that is justified. You can actually stand in the presence of God. If you don't understand that this was done for you by God in Christ and that you receive it by faith, then none of the rest of it will make sense. And so let's get that part down pat. And because then we have been justified, made right with God through the completed work of Jesus, it says, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. God's word teaches us that before we accepted Jesus as Savior, that we were dead in our sins and that we were enemies of God. Now, the easiest one for us to accept is the one that we're dead in our sins. We understand that we, we, did, we weren't alive to God and we weren't alive to the things of God. We weren't alive to the will of God. We, we can kind of understand that. But most of us kind of pull back when we hear that we were enemies of God because we didn't consider ourselves as enemies of God. Most of us wouldn't anyway. Now, certainly there would be some people who were you know, living in such a way that they declared God their enemy. But we really never thought about that before we came to Jesus, that God's my, that, that I'm an enemy of God. What makes a person an enemy of God? Yeah, who's God? God's king. God is the ultimate ruler. He has every right to command your life because he created you. He's king. He's ruler. Whenever we sin, sin is rebellion. It is rebellion against the king. Our sin 
is a declaration that we are enemies of God. We're fighting against the will and the purposes of God by choosing to be Lord of our own lives rather than acknowledging that God is Lord of our lives. We were enemies of God. However, God did something for us. He sent his son, the Prince of Peace, to bring peace between us and God. And the way he did that was to give his life on a cross, shedding his blood, being buried, being resurrected. And this crucified and resurrected Jesus, the Prince of Peace, by faith ushers us into the presence of the King. But not as his enemy anymore. As his child. It's a huge transition. We were once dead in our sins. Now we're alive. We were once, we were once enemies of God. But now we are children of God. Faith in the crucified and risen Jesus is the doorway through which we pass into the realm of God's grace. And then we stand with our feet firmly planted in that grace. The verb tense indicates that it is a completed act with ongoing consequences. This is no revolving door. Listen, you need to understand, you're not in God's grace one moment and out of God's grace another moment. Now listen, husbands, you can be in your wife's good graces one moment and out of your wife's good graces another moment, okay? But if you are standing by faith in the grace of God, that's a permanent position. You're never outside that realm. It's not a revolving door. You're there. It's it's secure. And again, it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what has been done on our behalf. Now, with that in mind, and, and this is important to lay this foundation, we get our first talk, our first mention of hope, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we stand in God's glorious presence. Now, I, I don't know if you know what that means, but God's glorious presence. John Piper defines the glory of God as this. The infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. When it's depicted in the scriptures, God's glory is depicted as a, a, a light that's brighter than the sun and pure white in its holiness. This, this glory is that when Moses went up to meet with God and came down from the mountain, his face shone with the glory. He shined because he'd been in God's presence. That's all it took was being in the presence of God 
to begin to shine with the radiance that God himself has. He's not radioactive. But he is completely glorious. When we stand in the presence, the glorious presence of God, we will never, ever do that and boast about anything we've done. You will never stand in the presence of God and say, hey, God, did you, did you happen to see how much I've been putting in the offering plate lately? Well, you like that? You will never stand before God and say, hey, God, do you, do you remember that time that I walked that little old lady across the street? God, do you remember that time that uh, I held the door open for that gentleman uh, with the cane? God, do you remember that stuff? We will never stand up before God and say, hey, God, l- look, here's my attendance record. For Bible study and Grace Fellowship. Aren't you impressed with all that, God? No, we won't do that. When we enter into the glorious presence of God, we will have absolutely nothing to boast about except what Jesus has done for us. That's it. Because our hope is not in what we've accomplished. Our hope is in Jesus. That's where our hope is. Hope goes way beyond wishing. That's how we kind of use it. I hope my team will win. I I hope this happens. I hope that happens. That's kind of how we use it as wishing. But in the Bible, biblical hope is confident assurance. Confident assurance. You know people who will make a promise to you. And you hear it and you go, yeah, I believe it when I see it. You don't really think they're going to come through. I mean, the lie that I hear most often is, I'll see you Sunday, Pastor. And there's some people, now if you said it, I'd probably go, okay, I'll look forward to seeing you Sunday. There are other people I'm thinking, hmm, is that going to happen or not? Because a promise is only as good as a person who makes the promise. And hope is only as good as the one in whom we hope. We can have a confident assurance that what God has promised will indeed come to pass. Our hope is to be in his glorious presence, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. But our hope is also double here because we not only hope to be in his glorious presence, but our hope is also that we will be transformed in his presence. Don't you get tired of being tempted and falling into sin? Don't you just get tired of having those thoughts, and you go, oh, I can't believe I just thought that. Don't, don't you get tired of those aches and pains that just never seem to go away? Don't you get tired of the disappointment? But we're told that there's a day when all that's going to change. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52 Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, not all of us are going to die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. That means they'll never die again. And we will be changed. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our hope is to be in the glorious presence of God, but our hope is also that we will be glorified in his presence, that our, we're going we're gonna to be completely changed. There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more prescription eyeglasses or contacts. There's not going to be any more hearing aids. There's not going to be any more surgeries. There's not going to be any more aches and pains. All that stuff is gone and there won't be any more death. This is our hope. Our hope is to be in God's glorious presence and our hope is to be glorified by God in his presence. But you say, Pastor, all that sounds good, but what about our hope now? What you're talking about is something that's that's out there somewhere in the future, but, but what about... What about today? What about December 2015? Where's my hope there? Well, what does Paul have to say? Let's go on. And not only that, he says, let's go further. But we also rejoice in our afflictions. Now, aren't you glad you came for that? We rejoice in our afflictions. Now, why would we rejoice in our afflictions? Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces what? Hope. Now, some of you are going, you know, Pastor, up until this point, I was kind of liking this message. Up until this point, you're telling me that, you know, God's got a place for me and I'm going to be in his glorious presence because of what Jesus has done for me. And one day I'll be changed and all these aches and pains and problems that I've got in this life, they're going to be gone. I have to worry about any of them ever, ever, ever again. But now, now you want to bring this into my life where I live right now. And you tell me that, that I need to rejoice in my afflictions. Pastor, I was kind of hoping to get through without a lot of pains and problems. I was kind of hoping to just kind of fly a little bit under the radar and avoid all those afflictions, all those problems, all those issues. Folks, I would love to tell you that God is going to come riding in like the cavalry to rescue you from whatever situation you're in. And a lot of what we read in the Old Testament, go back and read what David, David's, when David talks about hope, he's talking about hope for someone who, for God to come and rescue him from his circumstances. But it's an interesting thing that happens when we flip from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Our hope there becomes ultimate hope, not temporary hope. Temporary hope is, God, hey, fix this problem for me today. Fix this problem over here. Take care of this over here. Take care of that. But ultimate hope is, God, you're going to fix everything. You're going to balance the scales. All this injustice, all these problems that I read about, God, I I can't understand it right now because I'm in the middle of it. 
you're telling me that ultimately I need to put my hope in you because ultimately you've got the final answer. I don't know if you've read the last chapter of the book. If you haven't, spoiler alert, God wins. And the good news is we win with him. All those are in Christ, win with him. And what the New Testament is telling us over and over and over and over and over again is don't settle for placing your hopes and just getting rescued out of your situation. Because sometimes, sometimes you're in that situation for a reason. Sometimes, no, all the time, God is working all things together for the good who love those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. You don't have enough money to write a check, to pay your rent. You look at, is that an affliction? I, I would think it, it certainly could be. You get back and you get the report from the doctor's office and it's not good. Is that an affliction? Sure it is. I'm not saying these are good things. All I'm saying is that God can take all things and will take all things and work them together for the good of those who love him. And those who are called according to his purpose. Afflictions produces endurance. That is hanging on, trusting in God. And endurance produces character, making me more like Christ in attitude and action. And that character produces hope. When we are hard-pressed and we are hemmed in by the pressures of this life, it is then and only then that we develop a deeper longing for heaven. Think of this. If you're cruising along at 30,000 feet, And all your problems are long gone. And you're just enjoying this life to its max with no afflictions, no problems, no pains. Why in the world would you ever look forward to heaven? We want heaven on earth. But God says that ain't the way it is. This is a broken, fallen world. And there are times when, yes, I will come and I will rescue you out of your circumstances. And I will change the circumstances of your life. But mainly, I'm interested in changing you in the midst of your circumstances and getting you with a longing to look to me. To look for my glorious presence, to desire my glorious presence. What did Paul say? He said, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. What he's saying is, listen, if your hope is just in your 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, if that's all that you're hoping in Christ for, I pity you because there's more and you should crave that more. Your prayer should be come Lord Jesus so that I can go and be with you. We recognize that hope only in getting relief in our immediate circumstances is not enough. So we put our hope in the God who carries us in our afflictions and who one day will receive us into glory. Now, that hope 
This is what Paul says. That hope will not disappoint. That's the kind of hope that will not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us as a deposit, as a guarantee of what is to come. That hope will not disappoint. Disappointment is part of life. People disappoint us. Our leaders disappoint us. Circumstances of life disappoint us. Your pastor disappoints you. Your church family disappoints you. Hey, disappointment is part of life. Because people are limited. We have limited knowledge. And, we're, and, and, and quite frankly, we've got mixed motives and we mess up a lot. What Paul is telling us is that our hope should be anchored in something sure and solid unshakable, unmovable, and eternal. Our hope is anchored in the promises of God fulfilled in the life and work of his son Jesus. That's where our hope is. Our hope is that Jesus has secured for us what we could not secure for ourselves, a right relationship with the Father. Don't Listen, don't let that drift by you. It's just so much church talk. That the God of the universe, the God who could speak and bring all things into being, the God who had an eternal plan from the garden in order to redeem sinful humanity, that that God would take you a rebel, someone who was dead in their sins, blind spiritually, and bring you by faith in his son into his family and call you son or daughter. That is no small thing. That's our hope. Our hope is in a God who uses everything good, bad, and otherwise, and he works it all out for our ultimate good and for his glory. Our hope is that we'll one day stand before his throne, but not to be judged for our sins, but to be welcomed as his children. This is our hope. This is our confident assurance through Jesus Christ. And so here's the big question this morning. Do you have this hope? Not wishing. Do you have a confident assurance that when this life is over, that you will be welcomed into the glorious presence of God and that you will be glorified in his presence? If not, why not? Jesus has done everything necessary for salvation. We come just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up first. We don't have to make ourselves right first. We don't have to get all religious first. We don't have to wear any particular clothes. We come just as we are. And we come 
and we confess that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We place our trust in Jesus as our Savior. And we begin to follow him into this new life, this new adventure that God has for us. But we do so with a new hope that when this life is over, I have a home and I have a father and he will welcome me. A.W. Tozer wrote, earth is bearable because there's hope. Hell is unendurable because all hope has fled. Heaven is eternal beatitude that is blessing because hope is there in radiant fulfillment. That's where our hope is ultimately fulfilled. When the world looks at you, do they see a person brimming with hope? Uh, some of you honestly expected. Uh, so for some of you, you don't care about football, college football. It's just not a big deal for you, okay? But last night, there was kind of a, an important game for anybody who has favored Clemson or University of North Carolina. I went to University of North Carolina. Uh, I would not ever give them any money. Uh, because I don't necessarily agree with the direction the university itself goes, but I still pull for their sports teams. And last night, ACC championship game, I went in with hope, with anticipation, with a desire to see North Carolina come out on top. That's, that's what I hoped for. That's what I was looking for. And some of you this morning came up to me, and it was like I, I lost a friend. Are, are you okay, Pastor? just want to let you know I was praying for you last night. You know, it was, and I'm thinking, you know what? There was a time, there was a time when it would have been pretty bad. And I I can't tell you I wasn't disappointed. I certainly was disappointed. But it's a game. And honestly, my hope is not in the University of North Carolina football team or the University of North Carolina basketball team. Because if my hope's there, I will always be disappointed. They will never do as well as I want them to do. They will, they will never go undefeated for the rest of my life, okay? That's not where my hope is. My hope is in a little baby who was born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, who grew up to teach truth and to work miracles, And to call men and women to follow him. My hope is in that Jesus who stood before Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate and was beaten and slandered and falsely accused and crucified. My hope is in a Jesus who was wrapped very quickly in cloth and laid in a borrowed tomb. My hope is in a Jesus who on the third day shattered death and came forth in life and victory. My hope is in a Jesus who appeared to his disciples and then appeared to hundreds of others. My hope is in a Jesus who ascended into heaven and is there at the right hand of his father. My hope is in a Jesus who is waiting for the time his father turns to him and says, go get him, son. 
and who comes back to take me home to be with him. That's where my hope is. That's not your hope. If that's not your hope, it can be. If you're willing to walk away from self and selfishness and turn to Christ and receive him as Savior and Lord, you can share that hope. A hope that will not disappoint. Let's pray. Lord God, in a world filled with discouragement and depression and anxiety and gloom and hopelessness, you've called us to be a people of hope. And we can have that hope. We can have that hope not because of anything we've done, but because of what was done for us by your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray now that those of us who've received that, who have that hope, Lord, that we would not settle for a shallow, earthbound hope. That you would come and just save us rescue us from our circumstances. But Lord, that you would fill us with a hope that was brimming, overflowing as we look forward to what you are going to ultimately and supremely do in our world, in our universe, and in our lives. Lord, one day, one day we will stand in your glorious presence. And we will either be received as your children or we will be shut out forever. And the difference will be what we've done with your son, Jesus. I pray for anyone this morning who does not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that this would be their time, their moment, where they would surrender their lives and come and receive the salvation that can only be brought through him and a hope that will not disappoint. Lord, I pray for those who have this hope, but they haven't been rejoicing in it. They haven't been living in it. They haven't been cherishing it. Lord, teach us to cherish this most precious of gifts. Lord, I don't want to be so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. I want to be so heavenly minded that I can't help but do good. Lord, I want it for this church family. If you're calling us, Lord, to receive your son, if you're calling us to be a part of the life of a church, if you're calling us, Lord, to repentance and a new start, whatever it is, Lord, you call us to, we're ready to say yes. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.